good morning again. I don't know what it's like outside now, but it was gross. I mean, just disgusting when I left the house this morning earlier. And so way to be for getting out of your homes and not, you know, succumbing to the warmth of your bed and maybe a couple extra cups of coffee to come be with other people and extend yourselves. Way to go. All right, way to go. I'm proud of you. Welcome to New City. My name's Ryan. Uh, I'm the campus pastor here. So glad that you're here with us this morning. If it's your first time, you know, we just like our visitors to stand and tell us, just kidding. Uh, we're glad that you're here. And I hope that you make a connection, a meaningful connection with someone in our community. You know, the church isn't a service that we attend. It's a community that God brings us into that he calls us to be a part of. And, and so get to know someone around you this morning. A great way to do that is to take your community folders located at the edges of your aisles and let us know that you're here. They're our way of knowing who's in the chairs because we deeply care. Uh, you can fill out a prayer card in there if there's something that we can pray for you about. But it's also a way to, to just be awkward with your neighbors and get to know their names and then introduce yourself after uh, the service. Um, there's always a lot going on in the life of our church. I just want to highlight that right now our Next Step class is going on. It's just your way to take your next step with our community, whether that's membership or joining a group or figuring out how to serve. Um, you can do that the last Sunday of every month um, during this worship hour. So we'd love for you to do that and join us for Next Steps. Um, if you would mind opening your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 right now, we'll continue in our series called Witness. Uh, we're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost. And whether you turn there on your phone or on your tablet or in a book, um, whatever, however you get there, just get there right now. We'll be there in just a minute. Um, and I would love to, to pray just to kind of reset and then jump into this text together. So let's pray together. We got to open our eyes to see who you are. And in seeing who you are, just like Calvin said, God, help us to see ourselves, see who, who we are, what we're worth, and to find life and to find truth and to find beauty in the way that you've created us to live. In this foundational moment in the life of the church, the spirit coming at Pentecost, would you just help us to see wonderful things in your word so that we might be different, so that we might be changed, and we might live more according to your design for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it had been 10 days since Jesus ascended, went up to heaven. 10 days since the disciples' teacher, friend, and their Lord was gone. I mean, just think about this. They had spent the better part of three years day and night, eating meals, walking, smelling each other when they hadn't bathed, joking, and sharing life together with Jesus. And now he's gone. The disciples had gone into Jerusalem just like they had been told to do, and they were waiting in the upper room of this house, not really sure of what they were waiting for. But there they were. And it was Pentecost, an important Jewish festival that came 50 days after the Passover. And I know this week we've all, as we've maybe read this passage in advance, been thinking deeply about our Jewish festivals, reading up on them and remembering what happened. But if you haven't, Passover is pretty important. 
The Jews looked back to the time when God had delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. They remembered the night that they had slaughtered a lamb just like God had told them to do through Moses. And they had taken the blood of the lamb and spread its blood over the doorposts of their house. And what happened that night? Death, the judgment of God, passed over them. And they were delivered from the hand of Pharaoh and delivered from slavery and captivity in Egypt. And just 50 days before this day, their Lord, their friend, their teacher, their rabbi had hung on a cross, the ultimate Passover lamb, so that death could pass over them as well. And then he rose from the dead. He defeated death. He put death in its grave. He laid death to death. And then he spent 40 days with his followers, proving to them that he was really alive, proving to them that everything he had taught them about himself had come true. It was really true. This wasn't just a fantastic story. Jesus Christ was alive. And for 40 days, he was with them. And then he went back to heaven. But now he was really gone. And they just sat there in the upper room, praying, looking at each other, waiting, not knowing what was going to happen. And the population of Jerusalem had swelled by thousands upon thousands as people from all over the Roman world had come for Pentecost. It was one of the most attended of all the Jewish religious festivals because it was during a time of year that the weather was particularly temperate and easy for travel. And Pentecost was a festival during which the Jewish people looked back to another formative moment in their life and in their history. They looked back to the day that came 50 days after they had come out of Egypt, 50 days after that Passover day, 50 days when Moses led them to Mount Sinai, and as he went up on the mountain of God, he came down from the mountain of God, and he gave them something. He gave them the law. Now, I know that when we think about the Ten Commandments, Uh, They seem full of religiosity to us. They feel like a bunch of wooden rules and a list of regulations that kind of make it harder for us to relate to God. But to Israel, they were much more than just a bunch of laws. They were a way to live set apart. And most importantly, a way for the people of God to walk by grace through faith in a relationship with their creator. They were the foundation and arrangement of a relationship to them. To them, this law that Moses gave at Sinai was everything because to them, it enabled them to know who they were as a distinctive people, the people of God. And as Luke continues to tell the story of what will be the disciples' demonstration of Jesus' proclamation, we get to see what happened on this particular Pentecost day. Let's look at the text together in Acts chapter 2, and I'll read it and read along with me. I'd love for you to do that. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, 
devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one heard, was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and they were all astonished saying, are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. Guys, when we read the Bible, we could make a list of the top moments in the history of God's working in this world. Maybe, maybe a top 10, maybe even a top five. And I guarantee you, um, for most of us, if, if I told you to do that right now, I don't know if Pentecost would come up on your top five, but it certainly is in the top five, maybe top three events in all of the history of God's work in the world. I mean, we've got creation. We can't skip over creation. We can't miss creation. God makes the world out of nothing, and in it we see his design so that we could flourish, so that we could live and know life. And then we have the birth and the incarnation of our Lord, God with us, Emmanuel, come to die, come to save us. And in his death and resurrection, God's plan is realized. The story that he had been telling for generations and ages about what he was going to do to bring the world back to himself, to bring people who were sinners like you and like me, who were broken, who had wandered away from him back to himself and bring them close. And then there's this, Pentecost. And if we're really honest, we read a passage like this, and it's a little confusing. And maybe depending on the background of church that you grew up in, there were a lot of things in this passage and in the book of Acts and even in the New Testament that were emphasized more than other things. There are a lot of people who look at passages like Acts 2, 1 through 13, and they make things that happen in them normative for the Christian life. And they just weren't meant to be. They get misinterpreted and misapplied, and we get Holy Spirit confusion. We get confusion about what God is doing in us and what our churches are supposed to look like. So what do we do with this passage? I think the first step in the right direction is for all of us to just admit. You don't have to say it out loud, but maybe just, maybe just listen to this and think about it for you. We have to admit this, if we're honest. We don't really know what we're supposed to do with the Holy Spirit. Let me just say that again. Let's let that rest on us for just a minute. We don't really know, especially in the Western evangelical context, what we're supposed to do with this person, the Holy Spirit. And let me just explain this a little bit because I think it could be helpful um, to know where I'm coming from as I make that statement uh, as believers, as followers of Jesus, we affirm a mind-bending reality about the nature of God. For some of us, it's become so normal, so mundane, but it's not. We say that God exists 
as one God in three persons. And we affirm at New City a Trinitarian understanding and approach to the Godhead. Now, we can get on board with the first two members of that Trinity pretty easily. And this is where we get tripped up with the Holy Spirit. Let's start with the Father. Can we start with the Father for just a minute? Now, I know not everybody in this room had a great dad. We all have had different experiences with our earthly fathers, but each of us, deep within us, longs for a perfect father. And while we could argue that there are different cultural concepts of who a father is and what he should be like, the biblical picture is strong and it's exceedingly clear. God is not the reflection of your earthly dad. Even if he was great, he's not the reflection of your earthly dad. He's the perfection of your earthly dad. He's everything that you've ever wanted in a dad. And he's got an unstoppable love for you, a love that can never be quenched, a love that nothing can take away from you. He's got a great plan for your life. Even though probably sometimes even this week, you didn't feel like he had a great plan for your life. Whether you feel like it or not, God's a father and he knows what he's doing as he leads you and loves you. And he doesn't love you because of what you've done or because of what you will do. He doesn't love you because you're better looking than other people or you PR'd in your marathon this year or because you got a promotion at work or because you went to a prestigious university. He doesn't love you based on anything that you do. He loves you simply because he created you and he longs for a relationship with you and he longs for you and he longs for me to relate to him as a son or a daughter. Now that is good stuff, right? That's good stuff. God is our father. And then there's Jesus, the second person in the Godhead And you don't even have to be a churched person to get on board with Jesus. If you've read the Gospels, how can you not love him? I mean, he's the most lovable, approachable, perfect human being that's ever lived. He mastered what it means to be human. And the more we read the Gospels, the more it's clear that they're reliable eyewitness accounts of what happened in those days that he walked on this earth And tell me, how do you not become enamored with Jesus Christ? There's never been anyone like him, and there never, ever will be ever again. He's the one that you've been longing for. He's the standard. He's the measurement. He came for you, and he's evidence that there is a father who loves you deeply. And then there's the Holy Spirit. Or if you grew up in a tradition where you read the King James Version, the Holy Ghost. Yeah, now that's freaky, Holy Ghost. So we talked about the Father, we like that. We talked about the Son, that's pretty good. And then there's a ghost in God? That's weird, that's a little freaky. And somehow we have a big problem here, unfortunately. We've got to work through it. We've got to address it, and it's a real problem. Somehow the Spirit is someone we don't quite know how we're supposed to relate to in the life of faith. Somehow he's become the weird uncle 
of the Trinity. You remember Cousin Eddie from Christmas Vacation? He shows up and he just doesn't fit in with the rest of the family. This isn't really who the Spirit is, but in the way that we think about him, that's how we think about him. He's, he's the one who we just don't know what to do with. And Tozer said, the most important thing about you, the most important thing about me, is what comes into our mind when we think about God. So we have to start thinking rightly about the Holy Spirit. So if you love the Father and you love Jesus, I've got great news. I've got great news for New City Church. I've got great news for this campus. If you love them, you're, you, you ought to. You, you're bound to love the Holy Spirit just as much because he's the same God. He's of the same substance. He's co-eternal. He's co-equal with the Father and with Jesus. Remember what Jesus said? about himself. He said, if you've seen me, who have you seen? You've seen the Father. So if we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. So if we've seen Jesus by the same principle, we've seen God's Spirit. Here's one of the bottom lines. It's very simple from this passage, but according to Acts 2, 1 through 13, we cannot build God's church without God's Spirit. We can't. We can't build the church apart from the working of the Holy Spirit within us. And if we try, then we will build something that is less than what God intends for us. He's the one who does the work. He's the one who builds this thing called the church, and he invites us into the process. I know we live in an age where we've figured everything out, except maybe how to put together furniture from Ikea. We live in a time where we're fiercely independent and we celebrate that as a nation and as a culture. I'll be the first to admit it. Much of the time, even those of us like me who are pastors and church leaders, we depend far too much on pragmatism. That's the philosophy that if it works, we do it in the church. And we depend far too much on our methodologies to grow and build the people of God. And sometimes with a little elbow grease and the right leader and the right music style and all the right ministries and programs and ways of doing things, we can really feel like our church is working and humming. But that's deep down just not true. In fact, plan A from the time God planned for there to be a church was that his spirit was going to be the engine. His spirit was going to supply our horsepower. You know how we know this? Because in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is teaching his followers about the fact that he's leaving, he's trying to prepare them and give them a picture of who this person, the Holy Spirit, is. And he makes this statement. He says, it's better for you. It's better for you if I go. In the ESV, it's to your advantage if I go. Why? Because if I go, I can send the helper. Seriously, Jesus, it's better for us that you're not here, that we can't see you, that you don't just establish yourself as king and sit on a throne on the earth. It's better. That's what he said. And I'm pretty sure Jesus Christ knew what he was talking about. He, he said things that were well-informed, that he knew where they came from, and he knew what they meant. Jesus was not an external processor. Everything that came out of Jesus's mouth that he ever said was full of intentionality. Why is it better? It's better because only he, the Spirit, 
can take external ideas about God and make them internal realities in our lives. Only he can take external ideas about God and make them internal realities in our lives. It's better because we didn't need to be externally modified. We didn't just need to bend to the law. We needed to be transformed from the inside out. Let me explain this just a little bit more. Remember how I was talking about the fact that this day was the day of Pentecost and the backdrop for Pentecost was that Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the law for Israel? And for many of us, when we hear the word law, it does, it feels like a restriction. Like God is trying to take something away from you by not letting you do certain things. He's a taker. He's not a giver. But the law is not about restriction. The law is really about, if we understand it correctly, it's about permission. Permission to say yes to the way that God designed us to live, which is the only way that we will really be happy, that we'll really find contentment and joy in life. And it's permission to say no to those things that don't promote our flourishing or the flourishing of God's world. It's permission to us, for us to live as God wants us to live. But only one person ever fulfilled the law. And that's why 50 days before this day, what he said when he said, it is finished, it was the most powerful statement any person has ever uttered. Because it was done. The work was done. He had done it. We didn't have to. All we had to do was trust him. Guys, the Bible, it's the most amazing piece of literature ever written. It's, it's unbelievable because it's a unified story. It's not a random collection of things that happened that, you know, we took 66 different books and we figured out how to put them together and kind of make them make sense. No, God's telling a story through Scripture. It's his story And here's why it's so amazing. Like, think about what Jeremiah wrote centuries before Acts 2 and Pentecost. He wrote this. It's going to come up on the screens. I'd love for you to read along on the screens. This is from Jeremiah 31. God says this through his prophet. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God takes external ideas, but he makes them internal realities. He doesn't write the law on tablets of stone. He writes them internally on our hearts. And the only way that's possible is by the Spirit. So a few things from this passage that are going to seem a little basic, but they're so important for us, and we've got to put them into focus as we think about this. First, in life, this is a principle that's true for life, but it's certainly true here. In life, intimacy isn't possible. It's not doable without proximity. Um, Believe you me, I had a long-distance relationship. Liz was 
in South Carolina and I was in Michigan. It was a 16-hour car ride between us. And um, our long-distance engagement did not yield greater intimacy and closeness between us for those 13 or so months. Um, You know, they say that absence makes the heart grow fonder. And maybe it does in its longing, but it doesn't actually bring the heart closer to that which it longs for. And the proximity of the presence of God isn't possible without the work of the Spirit in us. He provides the opportunity for us to experience intimacy with himself. I get it. There are many days that you wake up and you say words like this, how long, God? Where are you, God? I don't like this, God. I don't get this, God. And he feels so far away. He feels so far away. But the reality of the Spirit is that even when he feels far away, God is closer to you than even your own skin. That's why Luke talks about the Spirit descending on the followers of Jesus like tongues of fire. Fire in the Scripture, in the Old Testament, is always a picture of the presence of God. And here, the presence of God comes and it rests upon his people. Remember the Old Testament? Moses is walking through the desert and he's tending sheep and a burning bush appears to him and God begins to speak and Moses has this intimate moment with God. Remember Israel, when they were running away, they were terrified of what was going to happen as they fled Egypt. And God was faithful to always lead them, to always guide them, and to always protect them. During the day, there was a cloud, a pillar of cloud, and at night it became a pillar of fire. They were always protected. They were always led. They were always won over by the presence of God. And here, the promise of Pentecost is that all of us have that inside of us. So we can be close to God because his spirit has come. Also, we have to constantly remind ourselves that any real change that we want to see happen in our lives, this could be patterns of behavior that you feel like you just can't overcome, sinful, destructive behavior, things that are destroying you, destroying your family, destroying other people. Or maybe it's things that you long to see happen through you. You want to see justice come to this world. You want to see your family members come into a relationship with God through Christ. You want to see your school be different than it is. Any change that you long to see happen in you or through you only happens from the inside out. By the working of the Spirit in us first and then God bringing his life to the world around us through him. And how does this work? It's a constant tension that we have to live in as we enter the life of the Spirit. We submit, we surrender, and we wait for God to work. We almost have to be actively passive. The disciples are sitting in this upper room and they're praying, but they have no idea what's going to happen. They're powerless. They're weak. They're unable out of their own ability to do anything, and they just wait. They depend. And then God brings about growth organically in life. And when we see fruit on the outside, the the only way it's really come, the only way that it's really true and real is that first it developed and it grew on the inside. See, deep in the roots of our relationship with God is his life-giving spirit. So we put ourselves in places for Jesus to work. 
Just like the disciples obeyed and waited, so do we. We pray, we read scripture, we fast, we memorize it. And then we wait, and then he works. And then we wait, and then we wor- he works. And our life is marked by him. Our life is marked by him. The first mark of that, according to Acts 2, is that our lives become living, breathing proclamations in this world about the greatness of God, specifically in his son, Jesus. The Holy Spirit loves to point a spotlight, but it's not on himself. That's why we often forget him. That's why we often don't know what to do with him. But he wants us to come into relationship with himself so that he can point a spotlight on Jesus. And Jesus and the greatness of God becomes everything to us. That's exactly what the disciples were doing. They were proclaiming the wonders of God in these different languages. I know speaking in tongues can be a tricky subject, especially in the church. And I know that many of us came from different backgrounds and we have different understandings. And we we can't get into all of that here today, this morning. This is going to be more of a survey of the book of Acts than a deep dive and study into exactly how it all works. But let's be clear, this is not a normative passage for what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Normative just means as a part of your normal Christian life, if you're really filled with the Spirit, then what happened to the disciples will happen to you. This is a crazy thing. They're speaking fluently in languages that they didn't know. One one preacher I like was talking about this. He said, it would be like the guys from Duck Dynasty all of a sudden breaking out in perfect Italian or French. You imagine Uncle Sai, I just just all of a sudden breaking forth into a foreign language in a perfect way. They're speaking in the native tongues of those who have come from all over the Roman world to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and it's a sign to build the church to establish the gospel where it's never been preached or known before, and Of course, it's never been preached or known before. This is day one of the church. The second mark of the Spirit in our lives is that we see him welcome the unwelcomed, that he wants those who feel unwanted. We talked last week about the progression of the book of Acts, that Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, near to you in Judea, and far out to the ends of the earth, my movement's going to expand, and the work starts here at the epicenter of Jewish life and identity in Jerusalem, the city of God. But the preaching is to every people of the world. God's global movement always begins first at home. And it's important to note that God's movement starts on day one to all the nations, to all the people groups of the world. Even if the disciples weren't ready for this, which, trust me, they were not ready for this. They were not ready to welcome the unwelcomed, to make outsiders insiders in the people of God. God was ready. He's building a church that will extend to the ends of the earth and and live up to what Jesus said. Even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in doing so, we see the kingdom of heaven breaking into the world that we live in. That's what the Spirit does. He breaks the kingdom of heaven into our world. There was a mighty wind that came from heaven 
to earth. And as the wind comes from heaven, God's design is breaking back in through the power of his presence. Remember the Tower of Babel? In Genesis, everybody spoke the same language and they were going to build this, what was in the ancient Near East called a ziggurat, this big temple that would reach in their minds up to, to the heavens. And the purpose, the point of it all was, we don't need God. We can get to God on our own. We don't need his help to get to him. We're gonna figure out how to reach God without God. And God said, I'm not having any of that. Uh-uh, uh-uh. This is not the way this works, people. And he confused their language and he scattered them everywhere. Well, what's going on in Acts 2? Babel's being reversed. God's saying, I'm gonna break into the world, and I'm going to make a people for myself. You're not going to get to me. I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you, and I will build my church. I will build my church. I'll make it stand. I'll establish it. I'll form it. I'll form it. I'm able. I'll do it. The gospel's not about you getting to me. It's about the fact that I came to you, and I saved you, and I made you who you are through my son so that no one could boast Through the Spirit, God's made a way to break into his good but broken world and bring it to rights. And he wants to still do that today through churches like ours. Finally, as we're marked by the Spirit, we're going to be misunderstood. Maybe a little weird. Different from those around us. And this is particularly hard for people who live in South Charlotte, who are driven by image, who try to keep up with our next door neighbors, and maybe this isn't you, but it's definitely me, care far too much about what people think about us as they look at us from the outside. We're going to be different in the world, but not of the world. And we need to remember that the church didn't grow and didn't expand in the first three centuries after it was started because of the affluence and the influence of this band of disciples. Honestly, from a human perspective, you can look at what historians say, it's very difficult to explain just how the movement of Jesus got legs and grew and became as influential as it was in the early Roman world. They challenged their own faith system and turned it on its head and said, you've got it wrong The Messiah has come. Here he is. They basically just went and told Jews all over the Roman world, nope, this is the way, so get on board and repent. Now, that's a fun message, isn't it? If you're a Jewish person and you have a long heritage, and they went to the Romans and they said, no, every cultural concept of what you understand about strength, about identity, about power, about authority is wrong. Guess what? Caesar is not God, and he's not the son of a God. The son of God came, and he died and was raised again on the third day. They weren't emboldened to say the things that they said or do the things that they did because they decided, hey, let's start a movement. Let's start a sect of Judaism. Let's start something new. In fact, they were ordinary men who were cowards, who weren't educated, who didn't hold high positions of authority in their culture. We'll look at this next week. But immediately after this, someone stands up to deliver the first ever sermon. And who is it? It's Peter. 
who weeks before had turned his back on Jesus, denied his faith, and felt like a fool. Peter was a coward by all of our standards and by all accounts. But he does a 180 and emphatically proclaims the gospel. The same Peter who ran away from his calling lives it out. Why? Because he just decided, I better do this now? Because he was gifted? Because he was better than everybody else? Because he, he had something in him that was more winsome? Or could it just possibly be that the Spirit had come and that this movement was now alive and had power, an unstoppable power? People of the cross, they didn't make sense in Jerusalem. They didn't make sense in the Roman Empire. And they don't make sense in 2019. We're bringing a culture that's counter to the one that we live in. Not contra, not against. We're not fighting against the world that we live in, but we are swimming upstream against the current. Now, hopefully, like the disciples were, you won't be accused by some people of being drunk all the time. That's not the application here, okay? Uh, the application isn't that you're, you're full of wine, but the application is that you're full of the Spirit. And if you're full of the Spirit, you will be a distinctive person in our world. And maybe we just, this morning, need to take a step toward being okay with that. Not annoying, not a cliche, but someone who's genuinely different. Genuinely different because God is at work in their life. I'll just leave us with one question. Is that you? Are you different? How is the Spirit at work in you and if he's not if you're not then what does it look like to make space for him in the life of faith let's pray God this is something that I want I want this to be true of me as I follow you and as I walk closely with you but far too often it's not we want a church that we're a part of to be marked by your presence, to be marked by your power, to be marked by who you are. And far too often, God, we come and we go, we get in our patterns and we get in our routines and we're just not, we're just not characterized by the power of the life that you long to bring in us. I pray that as we continue in this series and we look at how your spirit builds your people, God, that, that we would continually be shaped more and more by him. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.